Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. There are some places you never expect terrible things to occur. Some places that are just so pristine and picture perfect, it boggles the mind to think that anything bad might happen there. One such place was the affluent community of Oyster Bay, Long Island. Back in 1906, Oyster Bay was a popular spot for wealthy New Yorkers to get away for the summer. In fact, the summer White House where Teddy Roosevelt liked to chillax was close by at Sagamore Hill. Charles Henry Warren was president of the Lincoln Bank and personal banker to the Vanderbilts. And, as you might imagine, he was loaded. He rented a house in Oyster Bay and brought with him his family and a full entourage of cooks, servants, and gardeners. But the summer turned out to be anything but idyllic for Warren and his family. In August of that year, Warren's youngest daughter fell gravely ill with typhoid fever, and she wouldn't be the only one. Typhoid is extremely contagious, and it spread quickly throughout the house. Soon, two maids, the mother, another daughter, and finally the gardener all caught the disease. Typhoid was generally believed to be a disease of the crowded slums. It was often encountered in overcrowded tenements or other places where large clusters of people lived. It wasn't the sort of illness that was supposed to strike an upper-crust neighborhood like Oyster Hill. Typhoid symptoms are severe, including several weeks of high fever, headaches, rash, diarrhea, and delirium. One in ten people who contracts the disease dies. Back in the early 20th century, antibiotics didn't exist yet, leaving doctors only able to treat the symptoms and hope for the best for their patients. Luckily, in the case of the Warrens, all the family members and hired hands who caught the disease that summer would eventually recover. But that still left the mystery of the source of the outbreak. They knew that typhoid was caused by contaminated food or drinking water, so they looked there first. They tested the plumbing in the house by pouring dye into the toilets to see if the drinking water was contaminated. It wasn't. They studied the local shellfish to see if it had been tainted by raw sewage, but that turned out not to be the culprit either. The owners of the house, the Thompsons, were concerned that if they didn't determine the cause of the disease, then they'd never be able to rent the house again to other tenants. That winter, the Thompsons heard about a civil engineer who had a knack for rooting out the source of disease. He was 37-year-old George Soper, and he would go on to conduct an investigation that would eventually find the culprit, and thereby create the legend of the woman we all know now as Typhoid Mary. I'm Nate Hale, reporting to you live from inside my giant plastic bubble, and this is The Conspirators. The history of the world has been shaped by disease. 
With limited medical knowledge and treatments that were often as dangerous or even worse than the actual disease itself, hundreds of millions of people have died over the centuries because of various epidemics. The Greek scientist Hippocrates wrote a three-volume set on disease. Although he believed like most everyone did back then that illness was spread by miasma, foul-smelling gases that came out of the ground. In fact, if you've ever seen the rather creepy bird-shaped masks worn by the plague doctors from the Middle Ages, those were primitive gas masks which they wore to block out the effects of these miasmas. Tuberculosis, yellow fever, typhus, the Spanish flu, and of course that most infamous killer of all, the bubonic plague, aka the Black Death, were all enormous pandemics that laid waste to huge swaths of people around the world. The idea that disease was caused by everything from evil spirits to the aforementioned miasmas remained popular until the late 1800s, when Louis Pasteur proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that disease was caused by invisible microbes or germs. Of course, in the days before the invention of antibiotics, there was very little doctors could do to help the sick other than treat the symptoms, or in extreme cases, to separate them from the general populace in order to prevent the disease from spreading further. Some of the earliest known examples of quarantining patients dates back to the Bible. The book of Leviticus actually contains instructions on how to quarantine lepers. The word quarantine dates back to the 14th century, when the Black Death killed more than 20 million Europeans. The citizens of Venice, Italy, a major trading port, grew nervous that they were going to be devastated by the next big outbreak. So they built a special hospital on an island off its coast where six sailors could be sent for a 40-day waiting period to get better, or, more likely, to die. This waiting period was known as a quarantinario, which would eventually become anglicized to the word quarantine we know today. The idea of quarantining the sick has been used time and again over the centuries, all the way up to the modern day. You may remember the case a couple years ago when an American nurse who had spent some time caring for patients sick with Ebola in Africa was quarantined for several days before being allowed to return home. But if you look back in history, almost certainly the most famous case of human quarantine is that of Typhoid Mary. George Soper was a thorough investigator, if not exactly the most sympathetic individual. He was tenacious in his willingness to find the source of each illness. He once ended a typhoid epidemic by tracking the source to a house where the disease had spread, and, with the owner's blessing, burned it to the ground. But Soper had a tendency to ignore the human suffering around him and think more in terms of how each outbreak could help his personal fame and fortune. Such was the case when he was hired by the Thompsons to find the cause of the typhoid outbreak on Oyster Bay in 1906. He began his own investigation by taking another look at the work the other investigators had already done. When he couldn't find any fault in the prior investigations, he then turned his attention on the people in the house at the time of the outbreak. He questioned each member of the household, then he made sure to ask if there was anyone else who had been in the house that he hadn't interviewed. One of them mentioned that they had a cook that summer who was no longer with them. Soper knew it takes three weeks after exposure to typhoid for a person to become sick with the disease. He learned that the family had changed cooks on August 4th, approximately three weeks before the first daughter fell ill. Typhoid isn't an airborne illness. Rather, the typhoid bacillus was spread by an individual who got it under their hands after going to the bathroom. Typhoid requires a lot of scrubbing during hand washing to completely remove it. 
Soper knew the typhoid bacteria could only be spread through uncooked food. One of the people he interviewed described a particularly memorable dessert the previous cook had served of ice cream with fresh peaches. Soper became increasingly convinced that this was the original source of infection. But to prove his theory, he needed to first find the cook, a 37-year-old Irish immigrant named Mary Mallon. Soper reached out to the employment agency that placed her with the Warrens, but they told him they didn't know how to find her. They were able to put him in touch with some of the previous families Mary had worked for. What he learned from them stunned him. Over 10 years, Mary Mallon had worked for eight families, and of those, six of them came down with typhoid. Soper had once read a scientific paper that told of a German baker who was not ill, but who had turned out to be a healthy carrier of the disease and was able to spread it to others. He began to wonder if this same thing was happening right here in New York. If he was correct and he was able to identify the first healthy typhoid carrier in American history, it would be a huge boost to his career. In March 1907, he managed to locate Mary Mallon in a home on Park Avenue where she'd been working for another wealthy family. Once again, typhoid had spread throughout the residence. A chambermaid had already been hospitalized by the disease, and the family's only child was in critical condition as well. At the time, Mary Mallon was actually helping nurse the child. Soper mistakenly thought that Mary would share his enthusiasm when he told her his theory about her condition. He was very, very wrong. According to Soper, Mary turned angry and lashed out at him with a meat fork. I've never been sick a day in my life, she shouted at him, jabbing the fork in his direction. She ordered him to get out of her kitchen. Soper pleaded with her to allow him to take some blood and stool samples, but Mary stood her ground and flatly refused. On the surface, you can understand Mary's reaction. Here was this wealthy American showing up out of the blue telling her she was making people sick when she knew she was perfectly healthy. Back then, immigrants were constantly being singled out as the cause of all society's problems. New York at the turn of the century was a filthy wasteland. There were more than 200,000 horses on the city streets, each leaving about 25 pounds of manure behind each day. Throughout the city, you often had to wade through clogged sewers, uncollected garbage, and all sorts of other waste. In 1895, an army of street cleaners were hired to form the city's first Department of Sanitation. That's where the motto, cleanliness is next to godliness, originated from. But because many poor immigrants clustered together in tight-knit and often overcrowded communities throughout the city, they were often thought of as being filthy and disease-ridden. George Soper learned that Mary was living in a squalid rooming house on 3rd Avenue, below 33rd Street. Mary's boyfriend lived in the same building, and Soper convinced the man to let him know the next time Mary was on the premises. Once again, Soper tried to appeal to Mary by explaining to her the scientific reasons he believed she was making people sick. Mary would hear none of it, and again she threw him out. She was a tough woman who had been forced to make it on her own most of her adult life. She was born in County Tyrone, one of the poorest regions of Ireland, in 1869. She emigrated to the United States by herself in 1883 when she was 14 years old. She originally moved in with an aunt and uncle. But when they died, Mary was left completely on her own in this foreign land. She found work at a variety of low-wage jobs doing manual labor. Things like laundry, seamstress work, hauling coal... These were the only sorts of work available to her at the time. She eventually found a job in a kitchen, 
where she learned to cook and gained the skills to run her own kitchen. For a poor immigrant, it was a prestigious position. She was apparently good at it too because she kept getting hired over and over again. It's easy to see why Mary would have reacted so angrily toward George Soper. If word got out that she was making people sick, she'd never work in a kitchen again. Soper had no legal authority to compel Mary to give up samples to prove she was carrying typhoid. So he went to the New York City Health Department where he met the commissioner, Herman Biggs, and laid out his case. Biggs assigned a woman named Josephine Baker from his office to go to the home where Mary was working in order to take her into custody. Baker brought with her several police officers who stationed themselves around the building to ensure that Mary Mallon didn't flee. When Baker knocked on Mary's door, once again, Mary refused to go with her. She bolted, and the police searched the house from top to bottom looking for her. They found her hiding in a cupboard, and they dragged her kicking and screaming out of the building into a waiting ambulance. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. They took Mary to Willard Park Hospital, a communicable disease facility for the poor. They locked Mary up with all the other infectious patients, even though she wasn't sick. There, they forced her to give blood and stool samples. George Soper was elated when the lab results came back and he learned that he was right. Tests showed that Mary was indeed a healthy carrier of typhoid. Doctors believe Mary contracted a very mild form of the disease at some point, which she probably thought of as just being the flu or a bad cold. After she recovered from the symptoms, the bacteria kept growing in her system. Mary's story made the front page of the local newspapers. It was big news that the city's health department was holding a healthy 37-year-old woman against her will. They printed a false name for her, but it wouldn't be long before the public got to know her real name. The health department was at a loss what to do with Mary. They couldn't allow her to return to cooking for other people, but they were on shaky legal ground holding her against her will. A few hundred yards off the shore of the Bronx in the East River is North Brother Island. The island was home to Riverside Hospital, New York City's largest quarantine facility. Most of the patients there had tuberculosis. Patients were often brought there to live out the remainder of their lives away from the public. That's just what they did to Mary Mallon. They confined Mary to a small cottage on the island. Although there were no bars on her doors and windows, she was as much a prisoner there as if they'd sent her to the state penitentiary. As word spread about Mary's situation, many scientists and physicians began to speak out, imploring the health department to simply retrain Mary for another job, where she wouldn't be preparing food for people. But the Department of Health refused to budge, and Mary remained isolated on the island. They instead attempted to cure her with experimental drugs and treatments, many of which made her as sick or sicker than typhoid would have ever done. They tried to convince her to allow them to surgically remove her gallbladder out of the false belief at the time that this would remove the illness from her body. Mary steadfastly refused, and it was probably good that she did. 
Mary remained on North Brother Island for two years, during which time she mounted a relentless letter-writing campaign to the health department, George Soper, and anyone else who she thought could help her. In June 1909, Mary took her case to the state Supreme Court, demanding a release. It's suspected that her legal challenge was actually financed by legendary newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst, who began publishing her story in his papers. In these stories, Mary's real name was finally revealed to the public, but it's the nickname she gained in those pages that we all know and remember. Typhoid Mary. Hearst's articles revealed that the New York City Health Department had located at least 50 healthy carriers of typhoid walking the streets of the city. But only Mary had been quarantined. The health department countered that Mary was the only threat to public health, since she was the only one of the known carriers who prepared food for other people. Mary went to court with the results of some private tests her lawyers had arranged that showed no typhoid in her system. It's not uncommon, though, for typhoid carriers to produce specimens containing no bacteria sometimes. It doesn't mean they're safe, though. But several leading public health officials throughout the country began speaking out against Mary's incarceration. The New York Health Department began feeling pressure from every direction to let Mary go. In 1910, the city hired a new public health commissioner named Ernst Letterly. Letterly was much more sympathetic to Mary's situation than his predecessor had been. He released her from confinement under the condition that she never worked as a cook again. He even got her a job as a laundress. But this wasn't as terrific a deal as it sounds. Laundress was pretty much the bottom of the rung of the domestic ladder. And for someone as stubborn and proud as Mary, who had risen all the way to cook, it must have been infuriating. The health department kept tabs on Mary from 1910 to 1913. Although they admitted by 1914 they had lost track of her. The possible public health crisis was even worse for them by then. Because now they knew that at least 3% of the people who recovered from typhoid became healthy carriers of the disease. That was potentially thousands of people walking around the streets of the city able to spread it to others. The health department passed a resolution that all the city's food handlers had to be tested regularly for typhoid. It was an expensive program that caught relatively few people who were actually spreading the illness. Then in March 1915, an outbreak of typhoid fever happened at the city's prestigious Sloan Maternity Hospital. 25 doctors, nurses, and staff came down with typhoid. Two of them died. The hospital reached out to George Soper, the local expert on the spread of typhoid to get to the bottom of the outbreak. It's apparent that the hospital suspected something, because the chief administrator told George Soper that one of the cooks named Mary Brown had jokingly been nicknamed Typhoid Mary. Mary Brown wasn't there when George Soper arrived, but when George got a look at a sample of Mary Brown's handwriting, he knew immediately who she really was. She had written him letters for nearly two years, after all. It was Mary Mallon. Department of Health officials and police went to the house where Mary was living in Queens. This time, Mary didn't put up a fight. She went quietly with them. By the next day, when news broke that Typhoid Mary was back in custody after deliberately disobeying her promise not to go back to work in a kitchen, the public wasn't nearly as sympathetic as they were the last time. Mary was taken back to North Brother Island, and that's where she would remain for the next 26 years. She would eventually befriend members of the Riverside Hospital staff, and she even found work there as a lab assistant, 
After a few years, they even loosened restrictions and allowed her to take periodic day trips back to the city. In the years that Mary remained on the island, the health department was forced to come up with new techniques to handle other typhoid carriers throughout the city. Some kitchen workers were retrained, or even paid to stop working. No one was ever incarcerated the way that had been done to Mary Malin. Mary Malin died in 1938 at age 69. Throughout her life, it's known that she gave 47 people typhoid. Three of them died. During her time, Mary became vilified, and it's debatable how much of that was earned. There's no doubt that she was singled out and treated horribly. At the same time, there was something about her that refused to believe the evidence all around her that she was a danger to public health. And you have to wonder how much Mary suspected about herself even before all the doctors came poking around. She did have a curious tendency to leave a place of employment shortly after each occasion when some of the family members fell ill. And in later years, after the evidence was stacked against her that she was making people sick, she still went right back to work in the profession where she was most likely to cause harm. Today, with modern antibiotics and other treatments, typhoid is mostly eradicated in major urban centers. The name Mary Mallon is largely forgotten to history today. But the name Typhoid Mary lives on in infamy. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks as always for listening. I wanted to tell you about a couple bits of news. First, I wanted to let you know that this week you can find not one, but two shows. The episode you just listened to, as well as another bonus mini-sode. I just launched my first Patreon campaign, and I wanted to give you a taste of one of the benefits you'll get by helping support the show. I'm giving this first mini-episode away free, although future episodes will be offered as a Patreon exclusive. Each of these mini-sodes is fully produced with background music and will generally run around 10 minutes or so. There are a lot of stories I've been wanting to tell that aren't quite long enough for a full episode, so I thought the mini-sode format would be perfect, as well as being a great benefit for my Patreon supporters. Subscribers will get a variety of other benefits including exclusive access to the mini-sodes, stickers, thank you cards with a personalized message from me, and a shout-out to each one of my supporters on the show. Depending on the level of your support, you can also get other conspirators' swag like t-shirts and tote bags. Thanks in advance for your help. Unfortunately, producing this podcast isn't free. Your support will help me with hosting costs, purchasing reference materials, and also upgrading my recording equipment. If you're interested in supporting the show, I'll add a link to my Patreon page in the show notes. In the meantime, be sure to download my first bonus mini-episode to get a taste of what I have planned. I also wanted to give you a bit of an update on a story I covered a few weeks ago in an earlier show. You may remember the tale of the boys who stowed away on the sailing ship the Aaron, and the tragic events that followed. Recently a woman named Nancy Banner reached out to me via the Conspirators Facebook page. Nancy is the great-great-granddaughter of John Paul, the youngest surviving stowaway of the Aaron. Nancy has been reaching out to locate the relatives of the survivors of the tragic incident. Next year will be the 150th anniversary of the tragic voyage, and she's hoping to mark the occasion by getting a proper gravestone to mark John Paul's burial location. Sadly, the man was buried in an unmarked grave in 1913. If you yourself are one of those descendants, or know someone who is, 
I encourage you to drop me a line via our Facebook page, Twitter, or send me an email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com, and I'll be sure to pass your contact information along to Nancy. As always, I'm constantly thrilled to read your reviews of the show on iTunes. It really makes me feel like I'm doing something right. I encourage you to continue to spread the love and tell your friends and family to subscribe and rate us on iTunes as well. We're also available on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, or your favorite podcast app. Thanks again, and check out the show notes for a link to my new Patreon page.